Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to tell you about a great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction of technology and humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up. We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so my guest today is Jacob Turner. Uh, Jacob wears a number of hats. He is a barrister and author. He has lectured at Oxford, Cambridge, and King's College London, as well as at various technology and law firms. He has given speeches at UNESCO in Paris and the Human Rights Council in Geneva, the UN Human Rights Council, sorry. He has acted for sovereign states, including Argentina, Greece, Russia, and Iraq, He previously worked in the legal department of a country's permanent mission to the UN in New York and as a speechwriter to an ambassador. He's currently a member of the advisory board of the Conflict Analytics Lab, a research-based consortium on artificial intelligence and data analytics applied to conflict resolution and negotiation. He has a new book called Robot Rules, Regulating Artificial Intelligence that's published with Palgrave Macmillan, which discusses how to address legal responsibility rights and ethics for artificial intelligence. So welcome to the show, Jacob. Thanks very much for having me. So, Jacob, look, we're obviously going to talk about the book, Robot Rules, which is an excellent book, extremely well-researched and well-written guide to the ongoing debates about the legal implications of AI, robotics, and algorithmic decision-making. It happens to cover, I think, pretty much all the territory that I've covered on this podcast before and more in an easily digestible 370 pages. And actually, one thing I like about it is that it's possible to you know, dip in and out of it to some extent, because some of the discussions are self-contained, even though they do all fit together into an overarching analysis. So yeah, I definitely recommend it to anyone with an interest in this topic. And maybe I could just start by asking you why you wanted to write this book, you know, what got you interested in it? And what did you hope to achieve by writing this book? The initial idea for the book came when I was working as the law clerk or judicial assistant to Lord Mance in the UK Supreme Court. 
2015, one of the things you do as a judicial assistant is assist the judge you're working for on speeches that they give outside the court. Lord Mance was asked to give a speech on the future of law. And between the two of us, we decided to write it on law and artificial intelligence. When I was writing this, this speech, it occurred to me that there was very little at the time written analysing the legal and ethical implications of artificial intelligence. And it struck me that whilst the technology was going to have, as I saw it, a huge effect on all areas of the economy and society in general, there was conversely a disparity between the lack of discussion as to how this might be addressed on a regulatory basis. So what started as a five-page speech ended up, as you've said, in a 370-page book. Yeah, I'm just wondering as well, when it comes to writing a book like this from from a legal perspective, is you know, do, do we need a book that has a special legal analysis or treatment of AI? And I mean, to contextualize that comment or give some rationalization for it, there's a famous article by a US judge, Frank Easterbrook, from back in the 1990s. I think the article is titled Cyberspace and the Law of the Horse. And essentially, the article is skeptical about the need for there being some kind of technology-specific law or even a technology-specific field of legal study. And the example that underlies this argument is this notion that we don't need a special law of the horse to deal with all the legal issues that might arise from the sale and use of horses. So, I mean, should we be equally skeptical when it comes to AI? Is there a, a danger of assuming that we need to be too specific in our formulation of laws and legal analysis to deal with particular technologies? Or how do you think about that topic? I think in order to understand what I mean when I say that AI needs new rules or perhaps new formulations of old rules, it's important to start off first with the definition of artificial intelligence. Very often I see people writing about artificial intelligence, people disagreeing about artificial intelligence without saying exactly what they mean by the term. And I think as a result of that, people often talk at cross purposes. So my definition is as follows. Artificial intelligence is a non-natural system which is able to take decisions on the basis of principles as opposed to rules. Another way of putting it is to say that AI is a system which can take decisions autonomously. The key distinction between artificial intelligence systems and all other technologies which have existed to date is that all other technologies have been deterministic in nature. That is to say, with a given input, they will arrive at a given output. And this includes some technologies which are sometimes described as being AI. So expert systems, for example, wouldn't be AI in my category. Similarly symbolic artificial intelligence, which is, as the name suggests, described as artificial intelligence, again, wouldn't constitute AI uh, under my definition. The novel aspect of artificial intelligence from a legal perspective is that all laws, all ethical codes, fundamentally govern human choices. They tell humans what they can and can't do and what the consequences will be if they undertake certain actions or don't undertake certain actions. With artificial intelligence, you have a non-human decision maker. And that, for me, is novel. So, so that takes it outside of anything that we've ever, ever had to govern 
previously, and I, I think as a result, calls for novel legal solutions to these problems. Yeah. So, I mean, we're not going to be able to talk about everything that you discuss in your book, because as I mentioned, it's a very comprehensive analysis of, of the impact of AI on, on the law. Um, but I thought we might try and cover a couple of the main topics that tend to come up in debates about the unique challenges that AI might pose for legal systems. And maybe we'll talk about three of them. We'll see if we have time for all of these. The first one is responsibility, then the issue of legal personhood and rights, and then finally the issue of explainability or transparency. So let's start by talking about responsibility. Now, th- this is possibly the biggest issue, at least I would say in terms of the amount of ink that has been spilled on the topic. It's the one that has exercised a lot of lawyers and philosophers. So the gist of it, as I understand it, is that if an AI does something through its autonomous decision-making capacities that harms or injures another person, there is a risk or fear that no one is going to be able to be held responsible for that injury. In other words, if there's a responsibility gap that opens up as a result of the use of AI. So you know, why is this seen as such a big issue? And is it really a serious problem? It is a serious problem. The question of who is liable if an AI system causes harm is not one for which current legal systems are well designed. As I just mentioned, current legal systems, to the extent that they ascribe responsibility, do so by tying an outcome to a human decision, to a human action. Now, it may be that the person ultimately held responsible is a legal person, like a corporation, but ultimately, corporations take decisions through human decision makers. So you're still tying back whatever the outcome is, legally speaking, to a decision which was taken by a human. With artificial intelligence, you potentially have a break in the chain of causation what lawyers might call a novice actus interveniens, which splits the outcome from a human decision maker. Now, this sounds fairly esoteric, so I'll I'll give a quick example to illustrate what I mean by novel actions that AI systems can take. In 2016, the DeepMind-designed system AlphaGo defeated one of the world champions, Lee Sedol, at the ancient Asian board game of Go. What was interesting was not the fact that the computer beat a world champion, because that's been happening for some years. Think of Gary Kasparov and Deep Blue in the 1990s. The interesting thing was the manner in which AlphaGo beat Lisa Dodd. And there was one moment which, which illustrates this. In Move 37, of the second game that they played, AlphaGo did something which completely baffled everybody who was watching. Nobody could understand why the system had taken this move. And yet it turned out, several hours later, this was the winning move. Essentially, AlphaGo had thought of a new way of playing the game that no human in thousands of history, thousands of years of history of playing Go had ever come up with. So that's an example of the novel, autonomous, independent actions that AI can take. And it's not just in playing board games that AI is able to take these actions. It's in all sorts of spheres. And when AI does act in this way, there is a real difficulty in deciding who, under current legal rules, should be responsible for those actions. Do we have any examples of this happening already? Are are there cases where some kind of 
autonomous system has made a choice that has resulted in an outcome that we're not sure who is responsible for it that has some kind of legal impact. So you mentioned the AlphaGo example, but are there any others with a, a more legal... Sorry, let me rephrase that. Are, are there any others that have had a, a real-world impact that would join up with some kind of legal rule? Probably the most immediate examples of AI taking decisions which have harmful consequences and then there being uncertainty as to the responsibility are in autonomous vehicles. There have been a number of crashes over the last couple of years involving vehicles driving in autonomous mode. Several Tesla crashes, uh, some of which have been fatal for the uh, operators or the passengers in those vehicles. And most recently, there was an Uber crash, which involved the killing for the first time of a pedestrian. Now, the interesting thing about these crashes is that there was no case law created from them because the companies involved settled with the survivors or with the families of the deceased extremely quickly after the events had happened. And part of the reason, I think, for these settlements was the tremendous uncertainty as to what would happen in terms of the liability structure, who or what would be held liable, if anyone for these uh, decisions that were taken by the vehicle when in self-driving mode. One illustration of the difficulties which we have with regards to the responsibility is the UK's Automated and Electric Vehicles Act 2018, which actually specifies that the insurer should always be held liable if at least there was an insurer in place. So that's a good example of where a government has spotted this potential gap in the law and has legislated in order to fill that gap. Yeah, so, you know, actually, we need to maybe back up a couple of steps here from these examples, because in law, there are different kinds of liability. And you separate this out in your discussion in the book. So you talk about liability under private law rules, which is kind of what we're talking about here, and then liability under criminal law rules. So there are different kinds of responsibility gaps that might open up in each case. And so I think it's important for us to grasp that distinction before we discuss possible solutions to the responsibility gap problem. So you know, what does that distinction mean between the private law liability and criminal law liability? You're absolutely right. There is a important distinction to be drawn between private and criminal liability. Private law, generally speaking, involves the rights of action between private individuals, be they persons or corporations or other legal entities. Generally speaking, the aims of private law are to provide compensation where harm is caused, to uphold agreements, and in a milder sense, to deter harmful behaviour, albeit that this is a less important goal, I think, than the first two. Criminal law, by contrast, involves the relationship between an individual and the state. It involves the condemnation by the state, by the whole of the community, of certain particularly harmful actions that people might take. These might involve murder, they might involve theft, they generally are along the lines of what we might term the more serious moral transgressions. Now, of course, there is an overlap in substance, so certain criminal acts may also have private law implications. 
But it is important, as, as you quite rightly say, to distinguish between the two, both as a general matter and when we're talking about artificial intelligence. And I think artificial intelligence leads to problems in both criminal and private law in terms of working out the responsibility for ultimately harmful actions. Yeah, so that, I mean, there's different rationales or purposes underlying both kinds of, of liability, but and there's also different standards of proof, which is a, an important point to raise here too. But and as I mentioned, the car examples, the self-driving car crashes, these all involve I mean, the ones that you discussed. They all involve the payment of compensation for the injury, so they seem to be within this private law sphere. And while I agree that there is uncertainty in the private law sphere about how or what exact rule or standard should apply to accidents caused by autonomous vehicles, let's say. It seems to me that in private law, we do have a fairly well-established set of doctrines that could, at least in theory, help us to, to plug the responsibility gap. Like we, you know, There are fields of private law where we have strict liability standards where you don't need to know that an accident was going to happen or foresee the accident. It, you're liable irrespective of that. I mean, that is kind of the standard that seems to be suggested there with the holding the insurance company responsible. So is the responsibility gap problem really an issue in the private law context? And are there these doctrines that we could readily use to plug the gap in that case? The responsibility gap does exist as things stand in the private law context. The reason why I say this is because the existing doctrines, which you've mentioned, so for example, products liability, strict liability, are all premised on the basis of essentially a static product, usually a physical product, which once produced, generally speaking, is unchanged. So for example, when a car rolls off the production line, it doesn't continue to change and adapt. It stays more or less the same car that came off the production line um, when it's being used. It may deteriorate to an extent, but, um, but that's not the same as the way that AI systems operate, particularly systems which learn dynamically over a period of time, which change, which alter. And the, the difficulty with seeking to apply existing products liability and strict liability laws are that, firstly, it is difficult with regards to AI systems to know who is to be held liable. So for existing products liability laws, you might hold the producer or supplier liable. But with AI systems, we have a whole different set of parties. So you might have the initial architect of the source code. You might have the person or persons who supplied data, which is fed into that. You may have an operator who helps to retrain the, uh, uh, the system and adjusts the weightings of the parameters. You might have a licensee. You might have an ultimate user of the AI. So we can see that there are a, a, a large number of potential parties, each of whom is having an effect on the way that the AI functions and develops. So identifying who is to be held responsible is a real difficulty with regards to artificial intelligence. The other problem in terms of applying existing laws on products liability and similar to AI, is that many of these, as, as I mentioned, are tied to physical products. And AI may well not be physical, it may well be on the cloud, it, it, it may be non-embodied. 
So to take an example, Article 2 of the EU's Product Liability Directive refers to movables, and only movables are covered. Movables is, uh, refers to physical products. So we can see that this may not stretch to many of the AI systems which may be causing quite harmful um, uh, uh, eventualities in the future. And in fact, the EU did a public consultation into whether the whether respondents considered that the products liability directive would be apt to cover AI systems in the future. And around 60% of respondents said that they thought it wouldn't be. And as a result, the EU is now currently looking into reforming the products liability directive in order to accommodate the new technology. So I, I think there are firstly difficult policy choices to be made as to who should be held liable. And secondly, the existing law would be very difficult to apply in an unchanged format to artificial intelligence. But that's not to say that in the future, if these policy choices were taken and if the law were reformed, that you couldn't have a system. It's just that the current rules are inadequate. Yeah, so there's an issue here with the current legal code is being drafted for a different reality or different world. But it seems like there's ways in which we could patch it in order to address the concerns in, in the private law context. I mean, the other point as well about there being multiple parties who could be held responsible or liable and, you know, we have to decide who, who it is. I agree that that's an issue, but isn't that kind of an issue already under a lot of product liability law? To some, I mean, to some extent, I seem to recall lots of cases when I used to read them of car manufacturers suing subcontractors because of faulty products and you know, there's a, a, a way in which these things, the responsibility or liability gets distributed or spread out amongst different parties. And there's lots of fights about who is really ultimately liable and responsible for what, what happens. That's certainly true. But I think, again, the crucial difference is that with cars and with any other technology aside from AI, you're dealing with products which are static. They don't change, they don't vary once they roll off the production line. With artificial intelligence, you have a system which is constantly developing on a dynamic basis. So you may well be able to, in the future, carve up the liability and responsibility between the multiple different parties involved. And I don't doubt that that would be possible. The difficulty, I think, with artificial intelligence is developing the parameters for deciding who should be responsible for what and when. And it's important, I think, in this regard, not to see tort law and product liability regimes in the abstract. I think alongside reforming those areas of the law, we also need to think about the general standards that AI is going to be adhering to. By this, I mean industry-wide standards that might be promulgated by the International Standards Organization or the IEEE or other worldwide standards organizations to say what constitutes safe, reliable and robust artificial intelligence. So what one really needs is the development of a whole new ecosystem in order to govern artificial intelligence. The, the, the solutions won't just come from reforming tort law. Yeah, so there's a whole package of reforms that are needed to address and plug these gaps. And you uh, outline a lot of the challenges in, in the book. I mean, 
before I go on to discuss criminal law, is there any? Do you have any sense of what the private law solution should be, or what kind of combination or package of reforms do you think is necessary? My general view on solutions to the novel legal issues raised by artificial intelligence is that there is no single correct solution. Rather, we need a solution that is technically feasible, that can be achieved, that can be enforced, and that also gains public acceptance. And so within those, there are many different options that could be chosen. For example, we can see under existing legal regimes in New Zealand, there is a no-fault accident compensation scheme where tort law is done away with altogether as a means of compensating people when they suffer accidents. And that, and that works perfectly well in, in that system. It's a completely different system to that which there is in the UK, the US, Ireland, and many other countries, but it works. Likewise, with artificial intelligence, there are many different options that can be taken. Uh, I think the crucial thing is to design the institutions capable of writing the rules before we go straight to writing those rules. So in, in legal theory terms, I'm very much a positivist rather than a, a natural law theorist when it comes to, to writing rules for AI. Yeah, let's talk about criminal law, though, for a moment. Um I was actually thinking about this earlier on, so there was a way in which I was going to ask you about this before, but I have a slightly different take on it now, which is that do we need to think about criminal liability or responsibility at all when it comes to AI? Again, if we go with the the products liability scenario, what people have kind of normalized a view that if if an injury results from a product or a faulty product, it's a an issue of private law compensation, and we don't necessarily look for a criminally responsible actor, although we do in some contexts, perhaps. Is it likely that we're going to normalize a similar view when it comes to AI decision-making gone wrong, that we just don't really think of it through the lens of criminal law needs, or do you think that's the wrong way to to approach it? I think it will depend on the context of of what occurs as to whether uh, one will consider there to be a need for um, criminal liability to result. So where individuals are harmed, if the product in question was supplied by a corporation, it was just a a simple transaction involving uh, that corporation and an individual uh, consumer, then treating it as a matter of simple product liability may be reasonably simple from a uh, psychological perspective. I think things get rather more complicated the more independently AI systems are able to operate. If, for example, you had a, 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 a system which, or, or, or a, um, uh, an embodied robot, which when uh, delivering a, a product to somebody knocked over a pedestrian so that so there would be no contractual relationship between the uh, delivery company and the pedestrian who was knocked over in that type of situation i think it may be rather more difficult to try to apply simple products liability type type regimes there are of course many other crimes or many other criminal acts which don't necessarily involve a direct victim so we can think of uh, financial crimes such as market manipulation. Now, if that was undertaken by an AI system, 
which develops this methodology independently of uh, wh whoever its d designer is, then there may well be uh, a greater call for there to be some form of criminal liability there, whether it's for the system, whether it's for the designers, instead of seeing that as, as merely a, an issue of product liability, which uh, only really fits into harms caused to, to individuals. It doesn't uh, accommodate well uh, economic harms as things stand. Yeah, so if we are going to think about this in terms of criminal responsibility and look for somebody to be criminally responsible for the acts in question, we have essentially two options, don't we? We, we either think the unthinkable and say that the AI itself is somehow criminally responsible, but a lot of people think that's ridiculous, or we get into the issue which you raised with private law liability, which is that we pick on some related set of human beings who have some kind of control or, or responsibility for the use of the AI. Now, I mean, on the first of those options, do you think that's completely ridiculous and we should rule it out entirely? No, I don't think the idea of AI being criminally responsible is completely ridiculous. In fact, there was an example in 2016 of a collective of artists in Switzerland who developed an AI program called Random Darknet Shopper which went onto the internet every week and was given 200 Bitcoin and allowed to purchase whatever it wanted. And one of the things that the system decided to purchase was ecstasy tablets. The artists displayed these ecstasy tablets in a gallery in, in Sangay in Switzerland. And this came to the attention of the local police force who issued an arrest warrant for the artists and also for the computer program. Now, this sounds crazy, but you can sort of see where the police force were coming from, because in terms of the intention to purchase, in terms of the decision to purchase the ecstasy tablets, it's quite difficult to tie that back to the artists, given that the system that they released was an unsupervised system. They weren't telling it what to do. They weren't giving it any parameters. And Generally speaking, criminal law focuses not just on the guilty act, the actus reus, but also on the intention, on the mental state of whoever the potential perpetrator is, that this is the mens rea. And in terms of determining who had the relevant mens rea, the relevant guilty mind for whichever act, if a computer system has undertaken a criminal act and has made the decision to undertake that without being told to do so by a human, then I, I, I think, at least under the way that we currently think about criminal law, the most proximate party in terms of responsibility, morally speaking, is that computer system. However, there are, of course, great difficulties in uh, applying criminal law to a computer system. Firstly, AI, AI programs at the moment do not have legal personality, and that, that would be a prerequisite to having any form of criminal liability regime for them. So we would need to develop some form of legal personality for the AI, AI entity itself. And, and uh, I think we're going to come on to discuss that uh, shortly, so I won't, uh, I, I won't preempt that too much. The other issues are in terms of the 
retribution that one might take against the AI system, the, the, the punishment. Famously, it was once said of corporations that they have no body to kick and no soul to damn. And yet, we do in some circumstances have criminal liability for corporations. I think the signalling effect of criminal law in publicly condemning a certain act and describing the label of criminality is something which is really quite important and shouldn't be discounted in terms of maintaining the effectiveness of the criminal law. And so I do think that we should keep on the table at least the possibility of criminal liability for the acts of artificial intelligence. Yes, but I mean, so as you point out, and I think this is actually an important one uh, point to emphasize that corporations which have legal personality, there are laws in various countries that create criminal liability for corporations, like there's corporate manslaughter statutes in, in various countries around the world. But they typically, the way they operate, as far as I recall, is that they will focus on the actions of some relevant group of human beings for what the corporation did, which kind of leads to this other approach to criminal responsibility for what an AI does, that instead of focusing on the AI itself, you focus on some proximate group of human beings. And so when we focus on that proximate group of human beings, I think we do run into the problem of the mental state issue to some extent, particularly if we go with your earlier definition of what an AI is, which is that it is somehow independent or autonomous from its human creators. So if it's the case that a human owner or creator of an AI directs the AI to do something that is criminally reprehensible or is a criminal, is a crime, then that would seem maybe reasonably straightforward in that you could probably trace out some direct intention. But in other cases where there's that a less clear-cut relationship it seems like you're going to have to rely on some other kind of mental state to justify holding the human responsible. And it seems to me like that's going to be more of a challenge. That's exactly right. So when we currently have criminal responsibility for the acts of a corporation, as you say, that is tied back to human decision makers. With regards to artificial intelligence, there isn't necessarily a human decision maker. In fact, the whole idea of artificial intelligence in my definition is that there is no such human decision maker. The decision in question is taken autonomously and independently by the system. And so in situations where you have that, attempting to ascribe responsibility for a what would otherwise be considered a criminal act to some kind of a human decision maker way back in the chain of causation I think, becomes increasingly difficult. You could select a human who would always be held responsible for the acts of the artificial intelligence. But I think if you do that, you will lead to arbitrary results, which ultimately discourage innovation. A designer of some potentially extremely helpful artificial intelligence may well say, I fear having criminal responsibility for the low possibility, but nonetheless a real possibility, of this AI doing something which is harmful at some point in the future. And therefore, I simply won't release it. And I think if we have that, then the whole of society is likely to lose out. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah i mean i have written about this myself and you you kindly cite some of my work in your in your book and one of the things that i've argued is that an issue when it comes to criminal law is that people aren't just looking for somebody to be held responsible they're looking for retribution for some punishment to be inflicted on a morally culpable agent and you know i don't necessarily think that retribution is a good thing i have ambivalent feelings about that. But I do think there's a rather strong natural tendency or inclination amongst humans to desire retribution. And I think it's much harder to satisfy that need by trying to modify and stretch traditional legal doctrines of responsibility, like some kind of modified command responsibility standard, let's say, where we say the human is responsible for what the AI does because it is in some kind of quasi-command-like role. And you know, I think it'll be that'll lead to a lot of scapegoating and it won't be as morally appropriate or as as psychologically satisfying to hold these proximate human beings responsible for what the AI does. What do you think about that argument? Um, am I wrong to be pessimistic about the chances of plugging this responsibility gap in the criminal law case? I agree entirely with your analysis. I think that there certainly is a expectation of retribution amongst humans, which seems, according to many psychological studies which you cite in your work to be something that that can be observed across many different cultures. Now the question of whether it is appropriate to stretch existing regimes of criminal responsibility to always leading to a human I think is is one which ought in, in the long run to be answered in the negative. I think in the long run, seeing humans as always responsible for the acts of an artificially intelligent system will become like seeing the parents of a child as being always responsible for any act that is committed by that child, even after that child reaches adulthood. We have a distinction in most legal systems between the acts of a child before they reach the age of criminal responsibility, which is usually around 10 or 12, and the acts of that child afterwards. So before they reach the age of criminal responsibility, either nobody is held criminally responsible, or perhaps the parents might be vicariously. I think we are perhaps not there yet with regards to the independence of artificially intelligent systems, but we are certainly approaching that age of responsibility. And I think we need to think carefully about what policy solution is going to be adopted in light of that. 
whether it is to continue to tie back the responsibility to to some human or whether we think of novel solutions. One of these might be legal personality for the AI itself in order to plug that gap. But there may well be others. Before we go on to discuss legal personality, just one last point I want to touch upon, which I do actually think is important because it highlights something that is often neglected or overlooked, I think, in the debate about responsibility, which is that responsibility has a positive aspect too. You know, we're focusing here on the negative perspective, which is, you know, who's going to be responsible when something goes wrong. But there's also an issue about, you know, who's responsible when things go right. If an AI does something that is positive or good or creates a new product or idea that is good, do intellectual property rules apply in that that context? Who owns the products of an AI, for example? Now, you know, what do you, what do you think about that issue? I mean, you have a discussion in in the book of this somewhat infamous monkey selfie case. Uh, what do you think we might learn from that case, if you could explain the case as well to the listeners? David Slater, a British photographer, a few years ago, set up a series of cameras in the jungle where monkeys were playing. One day, one of these monkeys picked up a camera and took a picture of itself. And it was really rather a good picture. And so David Slater put this in his latest album, and he told the story underneath of how the monkey, who happened to be called Naruto, had taken this picture of itself. What he didn't anticipate was a US animal rights charity then pursuing him in the US courts, arguing that the owner of that photo was not David Slater, but rather Naruto the monkey. And so it became known as the monkey selfie case. The idea being that the creative act in picking up and push it, uh, pick, pick, picking up the camera and pushing the shutter was not that of David Slater, but rather that of the monkey. This case went all the way up to the U.S. Court of Appeals. Ultimately, the monkey lost. However, before the decision had been reached by the Court of Appeals, David Slater had actually agreed to settle with the animal rights charity. And to give a proportion, I believe it was 25% of the proceeds from that photograph to the animal rights charity to be used for the monkey and uh, presumably its friends. Now, this raises important issues with regards to artificial intelligence because of the fact that AI systems can now generate art, music, literature, and many other types of outputs, which, if they were created by humans, would be considered as deserving intellectual property protection. Intellectual property, particularly copyright, generally speaking, protects creative acts undertaken by humans. There is very little accommodation in existing intellectual property law for creative acts undertaken by non-humans. In the UK, under the Copyright Design and Patents Act 1988, there is a provision which states that in the case of a literary, dramatic, musical or artistic work which is computer generated, the author shall be taken to be the person by whom the arrangements necessary for the creation of the work are undertaken. So in limited scenarios that could be applied to works of art created by AI. The difficulty is, firstly, 
this is only a uh, piece of law in the UK, although a few other countries have have, have similar laws, but, it, but it's not a worldwide piece of law. Secondly, it applies only to literary, dramatic, musical or artistic works. So that doesn't cover, for example, a highly valuable new pharmaceutical design or the design for a new building, which might be created by artificial intelligence. And, and in fact, AI systems are now being used to uh, to make. The third point is that determining who the person by whom the arrangements necessary for the creation of the, of the work are undertaken is relatively easy to do with regards to traditional computer programmers, which are deterministic. And those were the computer programmers that, that the framers of this legislation had in mind in 1988 when it was enacted. It's not so well suited to dealing with dynamic, autonomous computer systems, such as modern machine learning systems, generative adversarial nets and the likes, which are now being used to create some very impressive novel output, which has real economic value. So the flip side, as you quite rightly identify, of the question, who is responsible if AI causes harm, is to say, who is the owner if AI creates something beneficial? And again, all current legal systems are not well suited to answering this. Let's move on to talk about personhood and and legal personality for AI. This is a topic that I've touched upon in previous episodes, mainly focusing on the moral issues here, about whether an AI can be a person in a a moral sense. But obviously the legal questions are, are important too. And this has generated a lot of, I think, controversial commentary online. There's an infamous incident a couple of years ago where the Saudi Arabian government granted citizenship to a social robot called Sophia by Hanson Robotics, and people were very critical of that decision. I was hoping that maybe you could shed a bit of light on how we should think about this issue, though, because I think maybe a lot of people don't really know what lawyers mean when they talk about personhood and how legal personhood is distinct from, let's say, moral or natural personhood. So maybe you could just enlighten us as to what do lawyers mean when they talk about personhood and what would it mean to grant personhood to an AI from a legal perspective? Personhood is, in legal terms, merely a bundle of rights and responsibilities ascribed to an entity. There are natural persons, namely humans, but there are also many purely legal persons, for example, corporations, charities, nation states. All these are recognized as having legal personhood. The categories of legal persons are by no means closed. And in non-Western legal systems, entities which we might not recognize as legal persons are given the, the rights and responsibilities that corporations and natural persons here are. So, for example, in in India, temples can have their own legal personality. They can sue and they can be sued. They can hold property and they can incur liability to others, whether by contract, tort or, or otherwise. Similarly, a few years ago, the River Ganges was granted legal personality by one Indian court. This was overturned by the Supreme Court, But the point remains that there is no closed list of the entities which can be given legal personality. Indeed, different types of corporations can be developed in even very advanced and very sophisticated legal systems. 
My view with regards to AI legal personality is that it's very important to distinguish the types of rights and the types of incidents of legal personality from the, the types of rights which we give to humans. So humans have a basic set of fundamental rights in most legal systems, the right not to be harmed, the right to freedom from torture, the, the right to certain civic entitlements, and so on and so forth. There would be no need to grant all of these rights to an AI legal person. An AI legal person should be seen more like a corporation which has a very limited, pragmatic set of largely economic rights and obligations. Now, some corporations in some uh, systems are able to exercise other rights, so that the right to freedom of speech can be exercised by corporations in some circumstances, and so on and so forth. But the key point is that legal personality is a creation by humans in order to serve the interests of humans. And I think it may well serve the interests of humans in the future. In order to solve some of these questions of rights and responsibilities for the acts of artificial intelligence in a consistent way with our existing legal systems, to give those AI entities their own legal personality. Now, that's not to say that the AI entities will own themselves. Existing corporations are owned by sometimes other corporations, sometimes humans. And we could have exactly the same type of a corporate structure with regards to artificial intelligence. But I don't think that simply because there are concerns about AI being used as a liability shield, that is a, a way of escaping responsibility for harmful actions by, by humans, I don't think that is a good reason for not granting AI legal personality, because exactly the same types of, uh, of responses, the same types of objections could be used against giving corporations legal personality. But of course, we're very comfortable with the existence of corporations, and we have lots of systems for avoiding them being cynically used by humans to commit harm. Yeah, there's a couple of different directions I want to go here, but f before we get into, I think, some of the practical and maybe ethical questions that arise from potentially granting personhood to a corporation, could we just back up for a moment and say, you know, is it actually maybe already the case that AIs could be granted legal personhood. So I don't know if you're familiar with it, but this guy Sean Bairn has written a couple of articles where he suggests that it might be possible under US corporate law for an AI to be put in charge of a corporation and thereby get a kind of de facto uh, legal personality. Do, have you come across that argument? And what do you think of it? If you have? I, I, I have, yes. So, so what Sean Bayon says is, is that you can have a US LLC corporation, and if all of the directors and shareholders resign, um, and you replace them with a AI, then you can have a situation where the AI entity uh, essentially becomes housed within this existing LLC corporation. So it's a bit like a hermit crab, which finds an old shell of uh, another mollusk and uh, adopts it and lives inside it. 
Now, th- this may work as a question of US corporate law, although there is rather a good critique by another lawyer called Matthew, Matthew Scherer on his blog. Um, but, but ultimately, I think it, it is not particularly relevant whether AI can be, can be accommodated within existing types of corporations for the simple reason that we can change laws. There is no closed category of legal persons which may exist. So the question of whether we can squeeze an AI into an existing corporation, I I think is much less relevant than the question of whether we should do so and how we would go about doing so technically. Yeah, so let's turn to that issue then. You know, should we do it? You have a discussion in your book about maybe some of the pragmatic reasons why we should do it. Um, what are they and you know, how compelling are they? The key reason for granting AI legal personality is to solve the questions of responsibility for harm, which is caused by that AI, and rights for uh, over the beneficial creations of that AI, so the intellectual property type creations that I described previously. The point of having a AI legal person would be to solve these issues in a manner which is coherent and which is consistent with the existing legal structures that we have. So you could completely change uh, your legal structures and find some way of ascribing the responsibility and the rights to a human. But I think the difficulty with doing that is that you might ultimately end up with misaligned incentives in as much as if, similarly to the discussion we, we were having previously, if you always try to tie back the harmful acts of a AI system to a human, you may well get defensive practices from the humans who might be on the hook. Whereas if you have an AI system, which is easily able to be ascribed with the responsibility, you have certainty from the perspective of the potential victims. There's an entity that they can pursue and there won't be gaps in terms of responsibility. And there's also greater certainty in in terms of the creators or or the original designers of those AI systems. We need to bear in mind that one of the reasons why corporations were first created was in order to shield the entrepreneurs, the business people of the world from the responsibility and from the liability if their businesses failed. So the idea of a liability shield, the idea of limited legal liability, is not something which is wholly bad or wholly wrong. Of course, we wouldn't want AI legal entities to be strong men. You wouldn't want to have a situation where an AI causes harm but has no ability to, uh, to, to recompense those who it's harmed. So ensuring that AI can hold property would, I think, be an important prerequisite in any any form of a system where AI, AI legal personality is granted. Um, maybe two questions about this. One is, are, is there a danger in setting up the concept or idea of legal personality for AI in the sense that it it generates certain expectations that might be erroneous or mistaken? So I mean, you mentioned earlier in your comments that it's important that we distinguish between 
the kinds of uh, sorry the bundle of rights and responsibilities that we grant to human beings as legal persons versus the bundle of rights and responsibilities that we might grant to AI as legal persons. But maybe it's hard for people to maintain that conceptual distinction. Uh, so you mentioned also this example of, of corporations having the right to free speech. as a U.S. case from a number of years ago, about 10 years ago now, which famously established this as a, as a constitutional right for corporations. But a lot of people were up in arms about that because they thought it was you know, stretching a, a category of rights to apply to corporations or grant them to corporations that it was an ill fit for what a corporation is as a legal person. Is there a danger that we might end up doing the same thing when it, if we grant an AI legal personhood, that there might be this expansion of the set of rights and responsibilities that an AI, an AI has that becomes a mismatch? There's always a danger that any form of legal right could be misused, could be stretched beyond that which society thinks it should be used for. Now, there are many controversial questions of uh, of legal rights being used beyond um, the original sphere. So to take another US case with regards to abortion, the right to privacy was expanded to uh, uh, allow women to have um, uh, rights to to undertake abortion. Now, that for many people was hugely controversial. So that, that, that's just one e- example of a situation where you have a, uh, a, a, a right which, when uh, interpreted by courts particularly, um, may be given a, a more expansive reading than that which some in a community may agree with. But, but that, I, I, I think, is by no means unique to artificial intelligence and the idea of, of granting it rights. These slippery slope type arguments, I, I, I'm not generally particularly impressed by. I mean, you might say, um, using a similar kind of slippery slope argument, and, and this, in fact, is what uh, m- many people, um, p- p- many people at, at somewhat at the extremes do say, that if you allow a man and a man to get married, then why would you not allow a man and a dog to get married or a, a man and a lamppost to get married? So the idea of granting one right inexorably leading to uh, something ridiculous, I, I, I think doesn't have that much uh, force to it, frankly. Uh, uh, so, so I don't think the, the idea of, uh, of a slippery slope to granting AI more rights than um, would be appropriate is a good reason not to give um, AI legal personality. We, we of course, need to uh, maintain AI within um, proper bounds in terms of the rights that, that it's granted. And I'm not suggesting that AI rights should, um, by any means, override human rights. Uh, but, but nonetheless, uh, th- there are good reasons for giving AI at least some rights as against humans and as against other AI entities um, in order to serve ultimate human ends. Yeah, I mean, so that kind of answers the other question I had, which is just about the kind of priority ranking between different rights. I was just going to ask you to emphasize that point. 
All right, so, yeah, so let's turn to the last of the topics I wanted to talk to you about, which is the issue of explainability. So this is another big issue that people talk about, which is that if an AI makes a decision, there's a concern that it's a black box in some sense, that the way in which it makes the decision, the rationalization behind it is opaque, it's not easily comprehensible to human reason, and this is a problem and leads many people to argue for the idea of legal protections against unexplainable AI and a call for greater transparency in AI-based decision-making. Maybe we could start just by asking the question, you know, what what is it that concerns people about this? Why is explainability deemed to be so important in legal and bureaucratic decision-making and other decision-making contexts as well? Generally speaking, the way in which decisions, at least those undertaken by human decision makers are assessed is by asking for an explanation. Now, an explanation may well not be needed in many circumstances where a decision has been taken correctly and where people are satisfied with the outcome. But in situations where there is a dissatisfied person, then under uh, many legal systems, there is a right to ask for for reasons and to interrogate the process by which that decision was made. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that in all circumstances the decision will be remade, and it, and it may well be that even if any reviewing party disagrees with the decision, they will maintain that decision because they agreed with the process by which it was made, usually at least in administrative and bureaucratic reviews of decision-making, um, there is a fairly limited scope for for the review that might be undertaken. But having an explanation of how the decision was reached is usually fairly important to that. Many codes of ethics proposed for artificial intelligence, in fact, in my experience, virtually all of them, have therefore required some form of transparency or explainability in the decision-making process of the artificial intelligence involved, at the very least, when it's taking important decisions. I think it's entirely correct to observe, as you did, that trying to ask for an explanation with many AI systems is extremely difficult, because in human terms, it is very hard to produce a narrative which accurately captures the nature of the way in which a certain decision was reached. Part of the reason for this is that AI systems do not function in the same way as humans do. They are often described as black boxes because of the way that their individual neurons, their individual elements reprogram themselves through statistical methods such as backpropagation and forward propagation, stochastic gradient descent, and so on and so forth. Explaining these sorts of things in any form of understandable format to a layman is virtually impossible, not just because of their complexity, but also because fundamentally we don't have the words, we don't have the vocabulary or the concepts to capture the way in which these decisions are being taken. So there is a potential problem here. Yeah, I mean, I've been making this argument for quite a number of years. And one 
a rebuttal or a critique of it that I commonly get is that people will say, well, you know, is AI really all that special or different in this respect? Because isn't most legal and bureaucratic decision making pretty unexplainable? Like most legal codes are unexplainable to human beings. Um, they're too vast. They're too complex. In fact, most lawyers don't really know the full extent of what the law demands or expects in a certain decision making context. Uh, and even if they do, it requires years of training. And, and so these are the kinds of issues that are often raised when I, when I discuss it. I mean, is that, is that kind of analogy that people draw between existing systems and AI-based systems fair? Or is there something categorically different when it comes to AI making decisions? There is something categorically different when it comes to AI making decisions. I think perhaps part of the reason for some of these objections may be the problem that I spoke of right at the very outset of our discussion, which is that people who you're speaking to may well not have the same conception of artificial intelligence, at least as I do when I say it. So the people who say that an AI system is is much like a bureaucratic system of rules may well be thinking of expert systems, logic-based systems, that is to say systems which codify a large number of logical propositions, if yes, then this, if no, then that, and so on and so forth, such that with the given input, you will always have a given output. Now, that is the way that many legal systems work. So you may have a system of rules that says, is something a, a vehicle? And then there might be tests for it. Well, does it have wheels? Does it move people? And so on and so forth. And you follow through those tests and ultimately you arrive at an answer. So a, a computer system which simply does that may well be like a bureaucratic system. And providing an explanation of that is ultimately not so difficult. Providing an explanation of the decisions taken by an autonomous system, and so machine learning is, is one example of this, it's not the only example, that is far more difficult because those are non-linear. They are dynamic in nature. And with a given input, the beauty of an AI system is that you don't necessarily know what the output will be. It may come up with a completely novel, brilliant way of achieving your goal. But the, the trade-off is that providing an explanation of that is difficult, if if not impossible. Yeah, ironically, that's a very nice explanation of the uh, problem here. Uh, um, there's a bit of a, a bit of a debate under EU law recently, and with the general data protection regulation, as to whether there is such a thing as a right to explainable AI-based decision making under EU law. I mean, what's your take on that debate? Is there a right to explanation under EU law? Articles thirteen and fourteen of the GDPR provide a right in the case of an automated decision made about an individual. And for for present purposes, I think it's fairly clear that an AI decision would be an automated decision. The, the, The right is to meaningful information about the logic involved in reaching that decision. Now, the words meaningful information, at the moment, we have no clarity as to what those mean. There is nothing further in the GDPR beyond a recital, this is recital 71, which uh, mentions a right to an explanation. But, 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 but again, the meaning of explanation and the meaning of meaningful information are, are completely obscure. So we don't know, for example, whether this means 
all of the data that was fed into the AI. We don't know whether it means a counterfactual explanation of how it reached a certain decision. So if a certain variable was isolated, um, would that decision have been different? All of these things, given that the GDPR only came into effect in May 2018, they remain to go through the individual regulators within um, each EU member state and ultimately to be ruled upon by the Court of Justice of the European Union. Now, we've seen in the past that the Court of Justice has come up with some very expansive um, uh, interpretations of legislation, particularly where individual rights are involved of, of, of natural people, and particularly where large corporations are the defendants. So I'm thinking of, for example, the right to be forgotten, which was more or less invented by the Court of Justice, uh, albeit that it is now uh, I- I enacted formally in the, in, in the GDPR. So my reading of the GDPR is really that it could be read either way as, as demanding that AI decisions be fully explainable in the, the sense of being able to tell a layman exactly how the AI system came to a certain decision, or it may mean something rather less intensive. The key issue is that if one does require a very extensive explanation of what the AI has done, that may well render illegal, at least contrary to the GDPR, uh, many AI systems which, although they are very effective, aren't necessarily capable of being explained in human terms. Yes, I had Sandra Vactor on the show before, when she, and she talked about what an explanation might mean and what we might be looking for when it comes to an explanation of automated decision making. And, and she, as you mentioned or alluded to there, she defends this counterfactual approach that it's that you know what variables needed to change in order for a different decision to eventuate. But I mean, as you also suggest in that last comment. Is this really something that can be addressed at a legal level? I mean, I, can, I understand that the law might create an incentive to use certain kinds of AI-based decision-making. But as you point out, there could be a, a compromise required as a result that we don't use certain kinds of highly beneficial AI. And don't we really ultimately need here a technical solution to the problem of explainability? We absolutely do need a technical solution. And I think the great danger is that legislators forge ahead with these vague demands for explainability without really thinking about the technical consequences or the trade-offs. Now, particularly with regards to the EU's language on explainability, the words meaningful information about the logic involved were taken more or less verbatim from the Data Protection Directive of 1995. So we can see that this is language which was taken from a piece of legislation that was written many years before the modern AI spring, which, uh, as you'll know, is from around 2010 onwards. And really, I think the legislators there were thinking about a very different type of technology, that is to say, traditional programming, which operates in, in a deterministic fashion. The, the, the words logic involved 
I think, uh, are closely tied to expert systems which do use logical steps. And therefore, by tracing back each of those logical steps, you, you can arrive at, uh, at an explanation. So th there is, a, as you say, a, a potential trade-off now between um, how this, uh, how, how intensively this uh, piece of legislation is, is interpreted and the effectiveness of, uh, of, of systems. The, uh, the technical solutions will be important, but we also need to make sure that legislators and regulators are sufficiently well informed about these trade-offs before they enact these laws and, and going forward when they are interpreting these laws. Yeah, so maybe like one, one last question I have which is tied into this, which is that if, you know, if we don't create a very strong legal requirement for explainable AI and there is this technical compromise or trade-off required, I wonder whether the law which states that there should be some meaningful explanation will have any impact at all because I, I, I would worry that people will always choose the convenient decision-making system over the less convenient, slower, explainable system. Let me to outline my thinking here. The idea is that, and this is already a feature of the GDPR, which is that you, you can consent to waiving your right to explanation. And if that's the case, then I suspect many people will consent to waiving their right to explanation, just as many people often waive their various privacy rights because it's just far more convenient to do so. Do you see that as something that might happen? I do see that as uh, something that, uh, that, that may well happen. And in fact, in most areas of life, what people want is not an explanation of how a decision was reached or why a process happened. They simply want it to work. So, for example, when you go to the doctors, you don't demand to know what books the doctor has read and what qualifications they have. You simply want to be diagnosed and treated correctly. Likewise, when you step onto a plane, you don't ask what the angle at which the aerofoils are, are, are set when it takes off and uh, what the velocity is, unless you're particularly into uh, it into planes you, you simply want the plane to take off and land effectively to get you to your destination and so i think there is a danger of fetishization of explainability uh, particularly by interest groups um, who who demand that this be hardwired into uh, in, in, into ai um, when actually as you as you say people's interests are in ensuring that they get the goods and services when they want at a reasonable price and with a reasonable degree of safety, robustness and effectiveness. However, the problem is that when laws are set, they are set across the board. And even though there may be a right to opt out uh, of explanations, there may be situations in which companies say, because we can't necessarily explain a given piece of technology, we'd rather not run the risk of being asked to um, to adhere to the GDPR or, or, or similar uh, pieces of legislation. And therefore, we, we just won't release it or we won't release such an effective form of this technology. One thing I fear is that we might have a situation similar to that which we had in the 
late 19th century when cars were first invented in the UK there were there were what's known as red flag laws which required that in front of each car on the streets there had to be a person walking walking waving a red flag to warn pedestrians and of course this was very effective in ensuring that people weren't run over but it also meant that cars couldn't travel at more than two miles an hour and as a result the whole usefulness of cars was completely neutralized and i fear that we may arrive at the same kind of destination with regards to ai if we promote explainability above all else yeah i like that example a lot i think it illustrates this trade-off between allowing for productive innovations and introducing unnecessary constraints on them and as you say looking back into the past this sounds ridiculous but is there a danger that in a hundred years time we'll look back and think that this whole right to explanation issue is is equally ridiculous um i think though unfortunately we're gonna have to leave it there and we've barely really scratched the surface of your book it's a lot more detail in it and in fact one of the most important topics in the book which we haven't touched upon is how to construct you know, a regulatory authority or body that would make decisions about how to um, develop rules for for AI. But people need some reason to buy the book and read it. So uh, hopefully we've whetted their appetite for it for the rest of the book. Um, thanks for joining me for this conversation, uh, Jacob. Thanks very much, Sean. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.